Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Um, thanks, Kevin, for inviting me. Uh, it's going to be hard to compete with the snow. Uh, these windows are just begging to be looked out of, so let me just surrender up front, okay? If you, because I, th- I think it's going to pick up. So if you feel the urge to look for a few minutes at the snow, go for it. Um, uh, you know, a friend of mine is a is a priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I, I don't know if you've ever been inside one of those buildings before, but wow, I mean, it's it's totally mesmerizing. Um, uh, you've probably been in one of those before, Christy, many, many times. <laughs> so it's, it's incredibly ornate. There are paintings everywhere, all these colors. Um, and, and people come during the week to look at it. And, and my friend, the, the priest, actually gives guided tours of it. And, and one of these tours uh, was a group of middle schoolers. And, and these kids were just awestruck. They, they'd never seen anything like this before, in, in a church at least. And, and finally, one of the kids asked the priest whether, um, whether or not all the paintings of the saints and the stories of the Bible was distracting to people in the sermon. And, uh, and the priest said, no. And in fact, most weeks, the paintings are a lot better than the sermons. Right? So, so we encourage people to look all they want. So anyway, same goes for this morning. Look at the snow. Uh, just don't make it a point to tell me how much better it was than the sermon, and we'll be, we'll be friends. So this morning, we're going to be looking um, at what Christianity is all about. What exactly is Christianity? Some of us might say that Christianity is a, is a worldview. Um, it's a lens. It's a way of thinking about the world from the creator's perspective. Um, some of us might say it's a kind of moral code. It's a, it's a lifestyle that that pleases God and, and also has the effect of making the world a better place. And still other, others of us might say that uh, Christianity is, is an experience. It's a way of encountering God that, that changes us and, and transforms us into better people, people who look more like God. But none of these things, as, as good as they are, none of these things really gets to the heart of the matter. Each of these things, a, a worldview, a moral code, an experience, each of these things is something uh, a Christian has, but none of them actually defines what a Christian is. Because a Christian is somebody who has a deeply personal relationship with God. A person who becomes a Christian moves from uh, just knowing about God distantly to knowing God intimately and directly. So to put it simply, Christianity is knowing God. But that begs the question, of course, who exactly is this God? Who who is he? And how does he want us to know him? How does he want to be known? That's the question John is answering for us in our New Testament reading. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, this can be a little confusing. We heard readings this morning from from two Johns, uh, the Gospel of John and the first letter of John. Right now, I want us to look at the first letter of John. It's at the very back of the New Testament, just a few pages shy of Revelation, where you've been camped out recently, I think. I won't dare to go there this morning. (laughs) 
So 1 John chapter 4, and let's listen again to verses 7 and 8. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John's revealing to us here something that makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. To say that God is love is to affirm that God exists as Trinity. It's an ancient doctrine of the Christian faith. Uh, there's, there's one God, and yet this God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've said that this morning a couple times. And, and these persons have known and loved each other for all eternity. And it sounds strange. Um, it sounds a bit like a Rubik's Cube to sort it all out in your mind. One of my favorite moments in church history um, was, uh, is when a 5th century theologian named St. Augustine tried to sum up the Trinity in seven statements. So, so listen to this. So uh, number one, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. Uh, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Okay, that's six, and here's the seventh. There's one God. <laughs> so strange? Yes. Uh, impossible to comprehend? Yes. We're going we're gonna to readily accede that, concede that. But so is physics, right? Uh, those of you brave enough to have taken physics in college or something can nod your head. That's okay here, but th the point is, just because something feels like a brain teaser, just because something doesn't, is, is incredibly complex, doesn't mean that we should dismiss it. Um, it. In fact, those are the very concepts often that make life possible, that make life worth living and understandable to begin with. And it's the same with this doctrine of the Trinity. It's this incredibly complex Christian doctrine, and yet it lies at the foundation of everything. Um, for our purposes this morning, we, we really don't need to make this overcomplicated. In order for love to be love, it necessarily has to have an object, right? So it has to have a beloved. It has to have an other. Otherwise, it's not love. Love is about connection. And so it can only be what it is if it's directed outward. It, it can only be love if it seeks the good of another. So here's the point. Lots of religions claim that their God is loving. But Christianity is the only religion that can claim that God himself is love. Uh, and that he has been this way for all eternity. So you see, a, a uni per let's get back to the Trinity for just a moment. A, a unipersonal God cannot be love. Allah cannot be love. The pantheistic God of New Age religions cannot be love because everything is really him or her or it. And so loving anything is really just loving himself. But the Christian God is different. The Christian God is tri-personal. He was love from the beginning. He was actually love from before the beginning. And here's where it gets intensely practical. 
for us. This has enormous implications for human life. Because if behind the universe uh, is merely an all-powerful, self-centered, unipersonal God, then the basis for all life is power. And, and that's what should be most important to us. And if power is more important than love, then we no longer have any basis for crying out against injustice. Uh, if the basis of life is power, then we have no basis for demanding tolerance and equal rights for minorities. Um, no basis for denouncing the racism of the 1950s and 60s. No basis for condemning the ongoing genocide happening right now in the Nuba Mountains. But if the beating heart of the universe is love, if before anything ever existed, God was sharing and giving love as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if love is the eternal um, constant that gave rise to everything else we've ever known, then the basis of all life is love. And this is something we know almost instinctively. I mean, how many people do you think lie on their deathbeds wishing with every fiber of their being that they had made more money or, or, or spent more time at the office? No. The most common human experience by far is that people wish they'd been more relational, right? They wish that they had spent more time with their kids or, or held their spouse's hand more often or been more present toward a friend that was in need. And why is that? It's because love is the most important thing in the universe. It's actually something that our culture has kind of gotten right. It's, it's just that Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview for giving any basis to that value in the first place. So you see, if you, if you really think that love is the most important thing in the universe, if you think that relationships are more important than wealth, Relationships are more important than status, more important than power and success. If you're the person that gets choked up every time the stereotypical workaholic husband in the cheesy Hallmark movie, you know, quits his job on Christmas Eve to spend more time with his kids, um, then it's only the Christian God, it's only the Christian story that makes those other stories even remotely possible. And if we look at the beginning of that story, the, the beginning of the biblical story, we'll see that it's always been about love. So let me invite you now to turn with me to our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. One of the things to remember about the book of Genesis is that it was, it was written in a, in a pagan context. There were, there were lots of stories in the ancient world that theorized about how the world began. Most of them had something to do with uh, a war breaking out among the gods and uh, the world being a prison and the humans were made to, to sort of share the repercussions of that, to, to be the prisoners, to be the slaves. But in Genesis, we don't see this type of thing at all. <laughs> what we see instead is a God creating the world freely, taking an almost giddy delight in everything that he makes. And it all culminates in verse 26, when, I mean, just bubbling with excitement, this wildly inventive God, three-person God of love, shouts across the cosmos, let's make man in our image. And can you hear the excitement? 
Let's make man in our image and in our likeness. It's as though he can hardly contain himself. It really is. It's as though the whole creation story comes to a screeching halt as this amazing God out of love, out of this abundance of divine relational life, desires humans into existence. And why does God do that? Not because he needs us. It's not because he was lonely without us. No, God's overarching purpose in creating us is so that we would know and experience his intimate friendship. Now, you might say that sounds heartwarming, but how do we actually know that's the case? Sounds a bit sappy. Well, we know it because of the way Adam and Eve fractured this friendship. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, feel free to turn there. Um, That was a passive-aggressive southern way of saying turn there in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve reject God. And, And we get a glimpse of the nature of their relationship with God when they hide themselves from him in the garden over shame for what they've just done. We know something is very wrong, that something precious has been defiled because of God's question to them in verses 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? That might be the saddest question in the whole Bible. It was a relational question. Not so different from what a heartbroken spouse might ask a wandering, relationally distant spouse. Or or a heartbroken parent asks a withdrawn and prodigal child. Uh, Or a friend asks a friend who once was very close, but is now relationally cool and distant. Where are you? Where are you right now? Why is this distance between us? Why are you acting this way? God had given them everything. Given them everything. Breath and life, food and water, beauty and work. But the most precious thing he had given them was himself his own love and friendship. But now, Adam and Eve suddenly, uncharacteristically, no longer wanted to be with God. They had cheated on him. They had rejected him and all that they once shared together. They'd ceased to trust him. They no longer felt safe with him. His his very uh, presence exposed their shame. They were uncomfortable. They were choosing separation now. And the story continues to this day. Each of us is designed for deep, experienced, intimate friendship with God. It's what we all long for most in the core of our being. But in those moments, when we become unsure of God's love and acceptance, or when we reject it as being either Um, unreal or beyond our reach, what do we do? We look for substitutes to fill the void. 
Some of us try to fill it by constantly chasing a fleeting romance. Uh, We cling to the newest prospect and never let them out of our sight until they finally just have to tap out. Others of us try to fill it by latching on to our children. We helicopter around them and smother them in the name of safety. We convince ourselves that they can do no wrong, and we show our fangs to defend them no matter what. Or or once they grow older and they have their own interests, we let them set the agenda for the day or for the weekend. Not that that's a bad thing, but we follow them around wherever they go because our worst nightmare is that one day they would outgrow us and abandon us. And we, so we cling to them. Still others of us fill it by holding the friends we do have so tightly that they can't possibly move away or, or even bring someone else into the relationship out of fear that that would utterly crush us. And all the while we're miserable. Because in the absence of God's friendship and in the ocean depth of love and purity and peace and security that it provides, evil begins to grow and take root within us. And as our identity becomes increasingly unhinged from God, we become increasingly and profoundly more selfish and insecure and fragile and more fearful and indulgent. That's why Adam and Eve hid. And that ultimately is why our culture has made so many attempts to shut God out, to banish religion to the sidelines and and kind of kick the old man upstairs into the attic where he can't bother us, so he's out of sight. It's our own Western sophisticated way of hiding from God. We deny his existence or we say he can't be known or that he's irrelevant. But that excuse can only work for so long because sooner or later, we have to deal with the New Testament headlines that God has come looking for us. So turn with me finally to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. John begins his Gospel in the most striking way. With this God of love, whom John calls the Word, walking once again in the garden of his creation, asking, where are you? And he puts it like this. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the heart. Here's the center, the beginning and the end of the gospel. The beginning and the end of history. God, the eternal God, creator of the heavens and the earth, became like us in Jesus, a vulnerable, mortal human being. He became a pilgrim and a brother walking with us in our pain and isolation. Why? To bring us back to God. But again, we rejected him. When Jesus came looking for us, he didn't 
red carpet rolled out for him. He met fear and opposition. Many people wanted to get rid of him. They clung to their security and power and refused change. But even through this opposition, the train continues to come. No. <laughs> even through this opposition, the plan of God is being fulfilled. Because through his death, Jesus reveals his love for us to the very end. Mother Teresa, Catholic nun in Calcutta, used to say, and I love this, used to say that God is thirsty for our love. And that like when Jesus said from the cross, I thirst, he wasn't actually wanting a drink. Uh, but that he was in that excruciating moment expressing God's intense and unrelenting love for each one of us. Here was the awesome creator God begging, panting in the most profound act of weakness for our love to be returned. Do you have the heart to deny him? Your God thirsts for your love. The one who needs nothing became nothing to ask once again for your friendship, the kind of friendship that you were created for, the kind of friendship that ultimately satisfies, the kind of friendship that makes life worth living. In Jesus, God has begged for your love. He's done something totally beneath him in order to win back the treasure that he lost. And that treasure believe it or not, is you. It's you with all your junk, all your pride, all your shame, all your baggage, all your betrayal. The treasure is you. God loves you with an unending love. He thirsts for you. And the question you need to answer for yourself this morning is will you give him a drink? Will you give him a drink? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.